the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. You know, the statistics that we shared earlier when Dr. Orient was on the program only tell a scant small part of the story. There is a bigger and larger tragedy afoot here that I think we really significantly need to be mindful of because it is a part of a broader attitude. Um, oftentimes on the program I refer to as the culture of death. And we, we see this played out in entertainment. We see it played out in the video games that our children play. Uh, we see it played out in the streets with the level of gun violence in America today. And it just seems as if the value of life has been discarded and treated as if it's disposable. And and sadly, part of this has a reckoning that I think awaits all of us because as, a, as long as we allow this culture of death to continue its stronghold, and it began certainly in the 1970s with the Roe versus Wade decision, it has continued into the 80s, 90s, and uh, the new millennium with things like physician-assisted suicide and so-called death with dignity and all of this. And now it's being played out by a very lackadaisical attitude in terms of those that are already being impacted by COVID-19, those that are the most vulnerable, and almost a nonchalant attitude as if to say, well, they've served their time, they've done their good, and so this is just sort of survival of the fittest, hearkening back to very much what appears to be a mentality that has its roots in the science of eugenics. And, and we've seen this touted by some notable people. Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, seems to have no problem with older people succumbing to COVID-19. Even conservative talk show host Ben Shapiro has alluded to the very same notion. And yet the inherent danger of this, of a culture and society that would embrace death in such a fashion, ought to scare every one of us. Because if we allow this from... The cradle to the grave, how soon before even lives in between can be deemed by some organization, some government as being one useful and the other not so useful and, and disposable like a used paper cup. Joining me now is Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And Brian, you bring some unique perspective to this issue as you served as a California commissioner on aging. You have been an advocate for the medically vulnerable and, and certainly for the elderly in the state for a very, very long time, in addition to your efforts on the pro-life front. And, and uh, your, your, your reaction to what we're seeing here in an effort to try and even cover up numbers by the governor himself has got to, got to absolutely be very troubling to you. Well, Craig, it is. It's it's very frustrating uh, to to be right. I hate to say it, but as you know, I've said all along, this is the right to life issue. 
And my frustration has been with a lot of us as Christians and as pro-lifers that we only think about babies because they're, they're cute. And there's a lot of people, when they realize, that's a baby. Well, our emotions go out then, and we, we want to protect that baby. But the reason abortion is wrong isn't because it's a baby and we like babies. It's wrong because this is a vulnerable human being in immediate need of care. That's all they need. But instead, they're killed and intentionally killed and legally killed. And this is alarming because when you speak about the laws now, it's not just some idea. It's not some philosopher at Princeton spouting, well, maybe we should do this or maybe. No, this is what's being done. It's being done by your lawmakers. Now, the the story you're referring to is documented really now by sources other than pro-lifers. The San Jose Mercury News had an op-ed piece, and it's very clear that what we knew in Europe isn't being discussed enough. Half of all the deaths are in nursing homes. That's the reality. And as this comes to light, you find out that these folks have been ignored. You know, and we've talked about on this, we talk about life matters a lot, just a shameless plug, but we've gone in depth about the problem with nursing homes. It's that we've already been ignoring these people. We already, as a culture, have shunted these folks out of our lives, when in fact this is the best time to be involved in their life and where they need us the most. So when COVID hit, and the notion was stay away, stay away from them, that was a very dangerous premise, and now we've seen why. Because we ignore them. And now the governor has specifically, along with certain counties, and again, I'm appreciative of the San Jose Mercury News, a very powerful op-ed piece where their, their reporters have found that the vast majority of deaths in the Bay Area are in nursing homes in Orinda, Hayward, Castro Valley, San Jose. And when this was brought to Governor Newsom, he said, oh, well, we'll do something about that. But he didn't. He didn't do any of the things, and the reporting now has ceased. We don't know the numbers of dead because it's not being reported in the counties and the state, just as in the case in New York, that they find the bodies later. It's stunning. And now the nursing home industry has petitioned and has asked the governor to give them a blanket reprieve that whatever happens in there, it can't be sued. And that is not ethically right, because I know that in nursing homes, it is intentional medical neglect. Historically, has been the problem. And now we're seeing it up close. So, again, I recommend folks can Google this, the San Jose Mercury News, an editorial upbraiding the governor for his culture of death, specifically regarding nursing homes. And, again, what we know about this illness. See, this is the irony. We know it's a limited population of people who are most vulnerable, and that the vast majority of us, if we're exposed, we actually do and can overcome it unless you have a a deficient immune system. That's why I have mentioned the real answer is not hiding and being in moon suits. The real answer is the immune system God's given you. There's ways you can strengthen that. But that's not happening for these very patients. And what's clear, I was proud of the president. He reminded people that hydroxychloroquine has been proven effective. As soon as he said it the first time several months ago, 
the media who hates him, and I hate to say this, but that appears to be the only reason they had to destroy hydroxychloroquine, because that would mean that the president was right. And immediately, the governor of New York has prohibited the prescription of hydroxychloroquine, because it would make the president look good. And here in California, doctors cannot prescribe hydroxychloroquine to the very people who need it. They need this protection. Instead, they're shunted away. Even the, the state has what's known as an ombudsman program. Those are people who go in and check on the health. They've been prohibited from going into these nursing homes. There's something wrong with how we're dealing with this entire issue, particularly when the most vulnerable, those who are in greatest need, are instead ignored and shunted away. And well, and I think, Brian, the, this goes to the to the core of something that you and I have talked about in the past, and that is the notion that that so much of this on either end of the equation, from the cradle to the grave, is all couched in money terms or industry terms. You know, it's the abortion industry or the health care industry or certainly the nursing home industry, and that at the end of the day, it's about maximizing income and in doing so clearly they wish to escape any sort of accountability here i mean to say that well they wish to have any accountability from a a, a fiscal liability standpoint waived in relationship to covid-19 as if somehow to say well if your mother your father your grandmother your grandfather whomever happened to die in our nursing facility on our watch during this time we don't want to be held accountable for that we don't want anybody asking any questions and you alluded to the the embarrassing way in which those bodies those individuals were dishonored at the funeral parlor in New York City, and you can imagine if somebody has the, the, the ability to, to treat the remains of an individual like that, a loved one, somebody, um, then certainly th there'll be no bounds, no limits to just how far they're willing to go. So this, this opens up a very dangerous precedence, I think, for the the ability for the the um, uh, science of of eugenics to really run amok, doesn't it? It does. I just want to be applicable, right? If you have right now, if you're in the Bay Area and you have an elderly relative in any nursing home, get on the phone. You're the only advocate. Those places should be advocacy places. They should be there, caring for and protecting. But that's not what's happened. And now the governor is accommodating them on behalf of an industry that makes a lot of money. There's a lot of money in health care, and they love to cut costs. And if it means cutting off lives, that's okay if they can do it with and not get caught. And literally, again, I would refer you to the San Jose Mercury News. That's not nearly the only place. This is really what was happening in Europe. Almost half of all the deaths in Europe were in nursing homes. And there, they did the same thing in many cases. They would isolate them and stay away from them rather than caring for them. They were afraid, oh, maybe I'll get it, maybe I'll get it. And when in fact there is actually, it's demonstrable that if you, uh, I actually spoke, I had a little debate with a, I have a neighbor who's a doctor. He works for the state prison system. So he loves government. 
And he's the first one who told me, oh, no, hydroxychloroquine, it's deadly, it's deadly. I said, well, who said that? Well, that study just came out. Exactly. It just came out because they want to prove the precedent wrong. But I looked at the same study, that hydroxychloroquine is extremely effective against viruses. And since the 1960s, in fact, the World Health Organization proclaimed it one of the top 25 drugs in the world. And then suddenly, when the president praised it as a source of hope, as a treatment, the media immediately, I have to tell you, the whole media and large portions of the healthcare industry, which is government control, which does believe in a centralized form of government, they immediately felt an obligation to defame the president. He's not a doctor. He doesn't know. We're going to tear him down. I have done, I've gone into the studies. I have a good friend, Tom Walker. He's the, the chair of the National Governor Prayer Team. He had COVID. And his doctor had to fight, and had to fight the, the pharmacy board in Indiana. But he got hydroxychloroquine, and he recovered quickly. And the fact is, this is demonstrable. And they talk about peer-reviewed studies. Doctors in New York, when they're there dealing with patients, they take hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic. So that's what I call peer-reviewed. Forget about all these new studies. Those studies are designed to take away hope and to give authority to controlling people and not having to save lives. There are people in nursing homes right now, and again, when the San Jose Mercury News finally admits what we've been saying for a long time, you know there's something there. So if you're in the Bay Area and you have a loved one, make sure you are hounding, and you can't hound them enough. Make sure they'll say, oh, you can't come, you can't check. Well, I want them checked on, and I want them provided with high doses of zinc. That's a safe thing. High, you can't overdose on zinc. It builds your immune system. And what hydroxychloroquine does, it actually isn't what allows, uh, it, it isn't what kills the virus. Hydroxychloroquine helps your cells let zinc into the cells. And it's the zinc in your immune system that kills that virus. And it's been proven, and yet here in California, they won't even prescribe it because it would make the president look good. That's how evil this battle of ideas is, and it's very real. And, again, those who are in greatest need are the ones that are getting shunted off and ignored, and then the rest of us are told to shut up and obey, and there's a lot of bad science being thrown around. I encourage you to study the studies. Don't just take the media's word for it. But we need to get resources and care into care homes. Those are nursing care homes. They're not just places to go die. And we have to challenge that attitude in our culture. We've been challenging it, but now with this situation, it's all come home to roost. And again, the governor has been accommodating it, and he's under pressure, not just from us, but from other folks that are seeing this. So very important. But the bottom line is you're, as a family member, you are the single best advocate for your loved one. Don't give up in advocating for your loved one. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. His program, by the way, Life Matters, dealt with this topic in depth this past weekend, and you can get more information uh, by tuning in every Saturday at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. That's Life Matters with Brian Johnston. Information available on the web, californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. <laughs> 
619. Let's get you updated on traffic right now. We'll head over to the KFEX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If I describe to you an environment where there's nothing but turmoil, tension, stress, seemingly every moment you can rarely capture a a nanosecond of peace when everybody seems to be getting along. There's yelling and fighting and doors being slammed and arguments going on and kids acting out, misbehaving. And it goes sometimes even beyond the behavior in the home to the behavior in the school. It's destructive behavior. It's behavior that might include association with gangs. And one too many telephone calls either made to or received from the police department. Growing numbers of families, particularly so in the inner cities, are experiencing the challenges of parenting in the 21st century. But does that necessarily mean that you give up hope? Well, certainly the answer is no. But then the other question becomes, how do you go about gaining the necessary skills to raise a challenging child in challenging times? You know, oddly enough, when you think about all the life skills necessary and the important tasks that you'll ever engage in in the totality of your life, whether you might be the president of an important bank, run your own corporation, whatever it might be, you'll do nothing more important then raise kids and prepare them to become successful adults in life, both in the terms of the way the world measures success, family, having a home, having a good job, and most importantly, from a spiritual standpoint. All that said, don't you wish they came with manuals? Isn't it be nice if once the doctor says, congratulations, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Jones, here's your, your bouncing new baby boy and girl, and here's a copy of the manual, And <laughs> but it just doesn't work that way, does it? But in fact... There are insights available, and there are tools and resources that are out there that if you're already a parent dealing with that messy situation I described a moment ago, there are places that you can go to learn the necessary skills, not with the idea of changing your kids, but changing you first and foremost. And as you change, then God in turn can work through you to see a life change in those kids. Joining me now in studio is Vern Tyler, certainly no stranger to the KFAX microphones down through the years. For many, many years, he and his lovely wife, Judy, ran Hosanna Homes, and now they've they've taken a new direction in terms of, of ministry. It's now called Hosanna Pathways, and it really comes down to, uh, Vern Tyler, equipping parents with the kind of skills that they really need to become successful at parenting. And it's so desperately needed. Um, we, uh, over the years, of course, Judy and I have uh, foster-parented over 800 kids, so we had a pretty extensive experience. Uh, our three biological children and our uh, uh, grandchildren, um, and thankfully, uh, half of those children, or half the children, and half my grandkids now are in full-time ministry. Wow. So... Um, you know, God has been very gracious with the Tyler family and has given us some direction with regard to ministry, and I think it's been very effective. So we're trying now to kind of migrate away from the foster care side and uh, provide support for families that need to learn parenting skills. There has to be something that uh, down through the years you and Judy learned in uh, helping to uh, to rear uh, over 800 kids along with your own three biological 
children um, that can be passed on to other parents out there, many of whom say, you know, I've, I've tried everything, and it just seems to be a battle of the wills, and it runs the gambit. It can be the the misbehaving, back-talking five-year-old or the 18-year-old who does nothing but slam doors and get in trouble with the police. And, Craig, you know, I think the environments in which we're raising our children, I'm going to say both the church and the family, we don't understand the significance of um, our behavior, what we expect of our children. Uh, so in the end, our, our, in the process, our children are very confused. They don't see the reality of their faith. Um, it's a very shallow experience. But I see in families, we turn to professionals. We don't think that we can handle some of these things on our own, so we're missing some of the basics. Even in churches, the majority of churches, particularly your megachurches now, children's church, I think, has been the worst thing in the modern church that has ever happened because we separate families. Children go to their church. Adults go to their church. I find it amazing, just this last year, in our church, we had a Sunday where we had all of the teachers and everybody take a leave of absence, if you will, and bring all the children into the congregation. It was very peaceful. But the amazing thing that I saw was after the church, I was wanting to greet some of these families that were around me and encourage them and say, you know, how uh, grateful I was to see them sitting as a family in main church. And I wanted to introduce myself to those children that were around they didn't even know how to introduce themselves to me. They look up at their parents and say, what do you do? And I have my hand extended. This is the confusion that's out there. These are the things that when we wonder why 70, 80% of our kids leave within a short period after graduation, uh, because they're not invested. They have not experienced something. Well, and there's a point, too, that you make. You, you made comment a moment ago, Vern, about... Uh, uh, the notion of what what we as parents expect of our children, and if if I were to poll everybody listening right now, and say you as mom, you as dad, what do you expect of your children? They would come off with a laundry list immediately. Do your homework, get to school on time, be respectful, don't talk back, be honest. Gone and on, on the list goes. We never take the time to ask ourselves a more important question, and that is, what do our children expect of us? And one of the, the issues I think here is, is we were raised as, uh, our parents raised us with a so-called issue of quote-unquote control. Parents are expected to control their children. And one of the things that I work with very closely or, or very uh, emphasize very, very strongly with a parent project is we don't control children. We control their things. Now, that distinction has to be developed. I can't do that necessarily here on the radio, but the idea is uh, if you try to control children, you're going to be punitive in nature. That just seems to be the automatic way that you go. And I think deep down at a certain point, parents begin to realize you really can't control them. That's right. It's a futile process. And at the end of the day, they're going to wind up controlling you. And you're going to aggravate. You're going to compound the situation. Uh, so you learn how to, if, if you just kind of stop it and think of it in this concept, you and I, we work every day. Why do we work? Because we're motivated to work. We get a paycheck. 
Uh, if we're an actor, we're, we've got a reputation. If we're an athlete, we've got a reputation. Um, that is a motivating factor for us. We have to understand what the motivating factor of our children is. And it's the things they enjoy doing. Their iPhone, TV, their video games. Use those in a constructive way. Control their items. And tell them flat out, I don't control you. I can't control you. You and I know in our growing up, every day we would do things that our parents would not approve of. Mm -hmm. Every day. Our children are no different. So we've got to understand the nature of our children, and we have to understand that we cannot control them. We can influence them, and that's what we work at. Every parent listening right now who is dealing with one aspect or another or multiple aspects of the laundry list that I cited a few moments ago, again, acting out, it could be the gambit of alcohol abuse, criminal behavior, destructive behavior to self and others, on and on the list goes. Every parent is saying, Vern, if I only had an answer, if there was only something I could do to change my son or daughter. When we come back after a timeout, we'll talk about that. Can you actually... Do something to affect change in them. And if so, what is that? Is it ultimately a child behavior problem? Or is it a bigger problem? A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're coming back to the conversation. Vern Tyler with us today from the Hosanna Parent Project and uh, Hosanna Pathways. Again, more information on the web at hosannapathways.org. We're going to get back to more of your calls. We're going to go to Rob in Vallejo. Rob, good afternoon. Come on in with your question for Vern Tyler. Hi, uh, Mr. Tyler. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, Craig, uh, I love listening to you. you. You bring on a lot of good stuff. Uh, Mr. Tyler... Um, I'm a 40-year-old dad, a little background. I, I came from a violent home. Um, I suffered incest and rape. Uh, but I have three children. One was just born uh, a couple weeks ago, and I have a 7-year-old and a 5-year-old. Uh, my 7-year-old's a boy, and he's a pretty good boy. Um, but I'm having problems with uh, my 5-year-old little girl. Um, she's uh, a little bit more mischievous, and... Uh, but she's a beautiful little girl, and I love her. Um, but I, you know, going back to you know how we were raised and, and how I was raised, I was raised uh, in a lot of anger. Uh, my parents um, suffered addiction problems, and uh, a lot of that stuff came back to me as a child. And uh, and I see myself as a parent now. Sometimes uh, I can get into the mold of my dad, who you know was a quiet man except for when you made him upset, then he got real loud and real angry and real violent. And, uh, and I, I noticed those tendencies within myself, but, you know, I curb them to the best of my ability. Um, I try to stay as cool as possible, but I'm going to admit, I don't think I do a very good job. And I'm sensing, you know, that disrespect from my daughter coming back to me, and I'm wondering, like, what advice would you have when I'm getting caught in that moment, when I'm feeling that fire come inside of me uh, because my little girl is, you know, doing the wrong thing or um, talking back? Uh, how do I, what, what should be my 
first response. I don't want to react. I want to respond. And, and, and just a little coaching would be a very appreciated here because I'm, I'm going to be on my way home tonight, and I already know that when I get through the door, and maybe I'm setting myself up for a little bit of failure here, but because I know my little girl and how she can push my buttons, how do I respond when she does start to push my buttons? Let me just uh, uh, give you a little word of encouragement to begin with. With the emotional issues that you're sensing, those are normal human emotions. So don't beat yourself up over that. The idea you need to do here is work, uh, learn some skills so that you can uh, control or manage those times of rage. Um, even those of us that are professional, uh, we become very angry and we can go into rage. I've got to check myself daily. I'll have situations that arise. Um, uh, you've got young children. Don't wait for your five-year-old to get to 15 when she has been, in effect, conditioned, allowed, not knowing how to manage these behaviors. Uh, the longer that goes, the more ingrained they become, the more they become a habit to her. You want to find strategies and ways that you can avoid that at an early age. And it's more than just biting your tongue, isn't That's it? I mean, right. she mentioned about yes. uh, He mentioned about his daughter, you know, knowing how to push his buttons, and I bet he knows how to push right back, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, it she, escalates. And, and she probably enjoys that. Mm -hmm. See, strong-willed kids enjoy That's an adrenaline kind of, a, of an issue. You get into a tit-for-tat, and a little kid that can take on an adult and, um, and uh, uh, match up, I mean, that's... That, that's uh, there, there's some gratification, human gratification that comes from that, even for a five-year-old. So you've got to learn. You need to learn how to walk away from that. You don't argue with children. As adults, we have to learn that. That's one of the first things I have to teach my parents: is you never argue. You don't have to argue. Uh, if you are a respectful person and expect respect back, uh, one of the first things you understand is I can't argue. I won't argue because it's only going to turn into a, an angry circumstance. So we avoid that. So, again, in the, in the training that I try to provide, this is one of the key things to work with families is learn how to avoid arguing. Don't let things escalate. Set the, the leadership standard of respect uh, and then expect respect back. Now, we as parents, I think, naturally want to control the situation. We don't want the five-year-old to beat us, and we are willing sometimes to, to again, engage in that tit-for-tat and escalation because we're determined before this exchange is over with that we're going we're gonna to make our point. We're, gonna, we're going to impress our will upon that child no matter what. And, of course, the child knowing that, and as Rob admits, knows how to press his buttons and is going to press right back. Absolutely. When you reach that kind of scenario when you feel it starting to escalate are there times Vern, when it makes sense to just walk away to not say i'm here going to beat you down until i win but rather to say until we can have a conversation i wouldn't say walk away as such okay. but yes you do have to distance yourself but again it has to be done in a respectful way so how do you disengage from that you know even with a five-year-old it can escalate pretty quickly oh absolutely how, how do you when you feel it starting you feel that rush coming up inside and you know mount vesuvius is about to blow how do you disengage from the child without looking as if you're surrendering it's basically very easy if again if you understand the concept if as an adult you are respectful to the child then you can expect or demand respect back so if a child starts misbehaving, talking back, 
misbehaving or whatever the case, uh, whatever action that might be, uh, or attitude that they're reflecting, um, I just look at the child and I say, honey, I'm not going to argue. I'm going to respect you, and I expect respect back. All right? So can we have a normal, calm conversation about the issue, or do we have to disengage here for a while? Do I need to leave? I see. I'm being respectful. I'm not just simply going to disrespectfully leave, okay. because then the child is going to say, oh, "I won." Yeah, uh-huh. I won. Or what a disrespectful way to do it. Even a five-year-old understands that. Mm-hmm. But you engage in conversation, and you, if you do have to leave, and many times you're going to have to leave. All right, you leave and say, "I'll be back in five minutes." Maybe only one minute or two minutes for a little five-year-old. I don't know. So you're going to, to separate, and you come back and say, honey, can we have, now have a good discussion, or do we still need to take some more time? And meanwhile, that's got the child beginning to think in terms Absolutely. of reprogramming the behavior. Because that's if they right. go, wait a minute now, I used to get satisfaction. His daughter probably gets some satisfaction out of pushing his buttons. Absolutely. Now all of a sudden, well, I push daddy's buttons. See, that's part of the daddy motivation. Daddy didn't respond. That's the motivation. Hmm. That's the motivation. I don't know what her what Rob's daughter is like here, but she could well love to engage just to show that she is a big girl and mm-hmm. she can handle herself with her adult father. Mm-hmm. That could be a psychological issue that's very profound here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to judge this not knowing the whole circumstance, but uh, that could very well happen. It, it sounds like uh, Rob would be a good candidate for yes. some training. I mean, what parent wouldn't be? They all, we all need it. We all need it. You're not going to do this. In a, you're not going to change this behavior. He's not going to get home tonight. Take this approach that you've just mentioned and see his daughter make him 180 by tomorrow morning. No. No. And it's see, we've got to do this. You have to be committed to this, don't a- you? That's right. The commitment, the long term, and you've got to model it, and you can't wink at it. See, I'm not going to take this challenge on now. No, no, you've got to be consistent. When, when our kids bump us with disrespect or bump us with inappropriate behavior, gently bump them back. Honey, we don't do that, remember? Mm-hmm. That shows disrespect. That's not a righteous behavior. Use mm-hmm. righteous. How many times do we ever hear anybody ever use the term righteous behavior? For no. those of us in the church, this should be common. And <clears throat> is it important for both parents to be on the same page? Absolutely. Because if one is taking this approach and yet mom still acts out and screams and yells, well, every kid knows if I don't get my way or satisfaction with one parent, I run to the other one. Well, and if it's, if it's an adrenaline thing, you're going to go where you can have get your adrenaline right. You're going to go to mom. Of course. Now, you've got a number of factors that play into this. So okay. it's very complicated, but yet it's very simple. All right. I, I hope at least to some uh, minute degree that's been of some help to you, Rob. Yeah, it has been, and, and whatever information I could get as far as the church in Castro Valley, uh, where you are offering classes. Um, They're doing classes at Neighborhood Church in Castro Valley, and you can go to hosannapathways.org to get more information. A podcast will be up tonight, too, as well, and you can always recapture tonight's broadcast on our podcast. The other thing they can go to is the Parent Project uh, website, which is www.parentproject.com. And uh-huh. all of the classes, now I'm the only one that I know of in on the West Coast that's doing the Faith-Based Parent Project. The others are okay. secular. But you'll see all the classes on that uh, on their uh, website, and you can register from their website, too. Uh-huh. Rob, I look that's forward to meeting you, buddy. Right all right. Thanks for the call, Rob. We're going to take a brief time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.